So even though we looked at uh, 2 Timothy 3 for the scripture reading, um, we're not going to be there specifically in the lesson, but 2 Timothy 3 is more dealing with principles that we're going to be continuing within the lesson. Um, In teaching, one thing that you see with Timothy and the instructions given to him as an evangelist, um, there's a lot of different things that need to be taught. And um, this congregation is a very diverse congregation. There's Christians who have been with the Lord and um, been Christians for a long time. There are Christians who have only been Christians for a short time. There are Christians here whose parents were faithful to the Lord and are still faithful to the Lord. And there's Christians here whose parents weren't Christians and weren't faithful to the Lord and aren't faithful to the Lord. And so it's very necessary, I think, just with the diversity of this group and as we're interacting with people around us even, um, to sometimes have lessons that are doctrinally focused and trying to make sense of what is true and what isn't. And for those of us who have studied these things before, I think they can be helpful reminders and really good principles to think about again. And for some of us, maybe these are things that we haven't thought about before and are a part of our background uh, religiously that when we look into the Bible, we can have a better judgment on what does the Bible say about things that are very normally accepted. And I think it can be very sobering uh, to see that oftentimes things that are very common and are accepted very commonly really fundamentally are very clearly not in line with very clear statements that are made in the New Testament. So this, this will be a lesson just trying to navigate just a few things, not, not everything obviously, but just, just a few things that I think would be helpful to uh, think about. Um, before we get into the lesson though, I think it would be helpful just to say a prayer um, before, we, before we go further, uh, if you'll pray with me. Father, thank you so much for giving us a day where we can set it aside to make time for each other and for you to worship you and to remember you and remember your glory and encourage each other and to affirm things to each other that embolden our faith and our dedication to you and remind us of who you are and how important you are and how important we are to you. Uh, Just please help us, God, that as we learn your word, that our hearts would be very open. Just please be with us and um, open our hearts to you and to listen to you, God, and that any imperfection of how things are said, that your word would ultimately succeed, that you would be glorified. Um, Just help us all to always be more humble and more meek, more willing to learn and willing to listen to you, God, and just help us to see each other in a way where we see that we are all just stewards and servants trying to serve you. And so help us, God, to listen in a way that encourages more love, more discretion, more discernment, clearer judgment, and helps us to help others as well. Um, More than anything, God, be glorified and be with us. In your son's name, amen. Um, So why why is this important? I think this is helpful Um, just kind of at the onset, thinking about this. Um, If you look at Matthew chapter 15, uh, the point on the board there is Jesus leads us to see these things as important. When there are common religious traditions that directly contradict things God has said, Jesus demonstrates that that's something to be taken very seriously. It's something to be aware of. 
And it's something we need to be informed about and willing even to confront. Uh, So Matthew chapter 15, um, I'll be reading uh, mainly 1 through 6, but I'll read through verse 9 as well. But we'll be thinking more about verses 1 through 6 here. Then some of the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. So these things are important to Jesus. Jesus leads us to have such a reverence for things that God says, things that God instructs, the way that God's will is to be accomplished. And there's a cleverness to the Pharisees and the traditions of the elders that they practiced. The cleverness is that washing their hands when they eat bread, it seemed like a very logical thing to do, right? So in the law of Moses, there were foods that were clean and unclean. A person could themselves be unclean. And then if they were unclean and they touched something, well, that became unclean. Well, now if you touch that, now you're unclean. So it just kind of makes sense as an interpretation of the law. Well, if being religiously clean is such an important thing, and if we can be made unclean by touching other things that are made unclean and we're not necessarily aware of it, well, it would be good then if we just always washed our hands before eating, right? God never said that. And so although there was a cleverness to their traditions that they had created, that they had made like God's laws, Ultimately, what Jesus points out is in verse 3, this wasn't this little clever tradition of washing the hands that they were treating like God's will was connected to much bigger problems. So in verse 4 and 5, Jesus points out that you have this tradition that you've been teaching that whatever you're going to give your father or mother, you can excuse yourself by saying you've donated it to God. But in verse 6, he says, you're actually invalidating the word of God by practicing and teaching this tradition. And he calls them hypocrites. So I'm sure there were other laws they were keeping. I'm sure there may have been other ways that maybe they could justify practicing this. You know, maybe they honored their father and mother in other ways. Jesus treated these things very seriously. And so in interacting with our culture and trying to serve people and, you know, talk to people about the Bible that we're close with, these things come up And it's helpful for us to navigate that and and be serious-minded about it. Just one chapter later in Matthew 16, so obviously the disciples heard this initial interaction, but not much later, Jesus says, hey, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The disciples argue, well, maybe he meant that we didn't take bread with us. And then in verse 11, Jesus says, how is it that you do not understand that I I did not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the, of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of the bread, 
but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So we'll see in a moment in Matthew 23 that Jesus would advocate when, when they sit in the seat of Moses in this teaching position, teaching the law, do what they say, right? But he was trying to train his disciples to be concerned about matters that relate to God's instructions. And just being aware that when something is contradicting something God has clearly said, you're not just to go along with it and accept it. And so Jesus was working with his disciples to have a greater reverence toward his word and to be devoted to the purity and the simplicity of devotion to truth and to separate that from traditions that would contradict things God says. And 2 Timothy 3, as we read in the scripture reading, Paul was very clear with Timothy that deceivers, imposters, that just gets worse and worse. And the reality is we live in a culture where there are thousands of different denominations and thousands of different ways of interpreting things and seeing things, and it can really just make it look like the Bible can't be understood, and surely everybody is just genuinely trying to figure things out, so maybe the Bible is just completely wide open to any kind of view and any kind of practice. So the point of this lesson is to really show that there are some very, very simple fundamental things that we can um, see very clearly in the word that helps us navigate that. So before moving on, though, um, I think there's some important qualifiers here. Um, I've wanted to give a lesson like this for a long time, just by nature of the diversity of this church, and um, just wanting to help equip all of us to have unity in thinking through these things. Um, But this has been something that I've been concerned about. Um, I've heard lessons in the past, and maybe you have to where you're talking about things more that others practice out there, and it can be like, you know, those bad people out there with all that false teaching, and you just kind of end up patting yourself on the back and saying, boy, isn't it great that we here in isolation, we've got our bubble of truth here, and nobody else does. And I want you to think Jesus didn't say these things to say, boy, isn't it good you're with me? Those Pharisees, wow, what a bunch of ridiculous hypocrites, right? No, Jesus said these things to only further humble his disciples and to equip them to be able to discern truth, to help others, to interact with others in a way that is rooted in the truth. And so the point of a lesson like this is not so that we pat ourselves on the back. And that that wasn't the point of why Jesus was saying, watch out for these things. It's ultimately, as we've been seeing with parables, things we see very clearly sometimes on the outside, really are related to more internal principles that we can be guilty of too. And so that's going to be a goal of this lesson is as we study some of these more clear things that we're trying to abide in, we also need to be aware of how that can still be a part of our practice in principle. And so learning and maturing in truth, if it makes us arrogant, if it makes us dismissive of others, if it isolates us and causes us to not want to interact with others or help others to learn and grow and reason with people, then here's the reality. If that's the result of learning truth, then we're not learning with a good heart. Because learning with a good heart means having more humility, more urgency to be helpful, more compassion on others, more humility, more self-awareness, more caution for self and attitudes in self, while trying to extend proactive mercy to others, to help others learn and grow. 
And just to be more aware of how dangerous deception is, how common it is, to, again, just be more sober-minded in a personal, personal way. So this will be the last point of the introductory um, slide here, is learning and maturing in truth ultimately equips us to have more humility, compassion, and sobriety. You know, you think about Jesus with his disciples and what was he training them for? He was training them to stand firm in the midst of a diversity of different views they would be confronted with as they taught others, to be able to answer questions about things, to be able to stand firm and hold to the truth when people don't want to believe it. And so Jesus was training his disciples to go and help others find the truth and abide in it and stand firm themselves and help people see the clarity of what God has said. And so learning and maturing in truth means becoming more humble, more compassionate, not dismissive, not malicious against others or pointing the finger at others while not carefully examining self. So the first thing I really want to examine is pastors. Who are they? Um, There's an issue that it is normal in our culture for a preacher to be called pastor. And pastor, um, just as a word, it literally means shepherd. So oftentimes when I'm meeting people, this might sound bad, but I have a hard time feeling comfortable a lot of times telling people that I'm a full-time preacher because what happens next is, oh, you're a pastor. And you can just see their eyes light up and the way that they treat me is not the same after that. That is a, a serious difficulty. Um, and it's, it's, I don't know, it's hard for me to understand how to interact with that. You know, there's, there's times where I do my best to try to say, no, 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 I'm not a pastor and there's people or the next time I see him, hey, it's Pastor Brian. It's like, no, we talked about this. I'm, I'm not a pastor. But that's just, it's a very common thing that's very ingrained. A preacher in the world normally is just that is a pastor and it's a title that's put on a person. One first thing, Matthew 23. What we find in Matthew 23, this will be the principle we come back to. Jesus very strongly forbid using honorary titles to distinguish or exalt people. And this is, this is critical because this is something that the Pharisees, they basked in. And I think this is something that went uncorrected. It's, it's exactly a problem uh, today as well. So Matthew 23, I want to start in verse 1 uh, and lead down to verse 12 here. Matthew 23, verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. So I think one thing you see emphasized in verse 7 and 8 
You know, I think Jesus was forbidding generally, you know, associating honorable titles to people to distinguish them or exalt them. But I think it's important to note, especially teachers, you know, it's, it can seem subtle. And again, we'll come back to this. But I think Jesus is very aware in his humility things that in subtlety can give liberty for pride and not only pride in encouraging it in another person but in seeing other people in a way that reflects pride in the person giving that glory that doesn't belong to a person. So Jesus would say, especially to teachers, do not call people rabbi. And this is something very commonly you see somebody who is pastor so-and-so, or I've even seen doctor, reverend, so-and-so pastor. I mean, just you can see that this is something that the world commonly accepts. It's very normal. But fundamentally, just in principle, Jesus said honorary titles that distinguish and exalt people, that's not a part of the culture of his kingdom. So with that, uh, turn to Titus chapter 1. Secondly, a pastor is not necessarily a preacher. Um, And so we look at Titus 1, but 1 Timothy 3 uh, in parallel is dealing with the same office of leadership. So in Titus 1, 5 through 9, God defines a pastor as a man who meets specific qualifications and is appointed by the local church to oversee the church. So look at Titus 1, 5 through 9. For this reason I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders. And we'll see in a moment that elders is also just another way of describing a pastor. Appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer, so again, the same word describing the same office of leadership, the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teachings that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So again, just as clearly as I can say it, a pastor, elder, overseer, is a man who here is married, he has children who believe, he's above reproach, And then verses 7 through 9 holds these other qualities. And then you go back to verse 5. This is not somebody who just places himself in leadership. This is somebody appointed by the brethren who see that this is a trustworthy person who holds these characteristics and qualities. And so a pastor cannot be a single man. It can't be a young man. It can't be a married man who does not have kids. And I don't believe it can be a married man who only has toddlers, right? So we're dealing with something very specific, right? And even with churches that do have elders appointed, I've never seen a sound congregation where an elder, pastor, overseer will tolerate being called that when they're introduced or meeting people, right? 
Um, in fact, in Matthew 23, he says, don't be called rabbi. And so he's not only putting the obligation on the person who is talking to this person, but he's saying, you who are teaching, you who are leading, don't let people give you that honor. Don't let people in subtlety allow that prideful thing. So we're going to look at this for a second just to kind of show this in some scriptures. Pastor, elder, when dealing with an appointed person in a church or a bishop or an overseer, these are four terms that in the New Testament, they are all describing the same office of leadership in the church that we read here in Titus chapter 1. So Titus 1.5, we have the instruction to appoint elders. So not just older men who just, they get old and they're an elder being old. That's not the point. These are men who are older, but they are appointed. And then we see in Acts 14, when they had appointed elders for them, that is local churches, every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then we see in Acts chapter 20, Paul calls the elders of the church in Ephesus. So it says, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And in verse 28, he exhorts them, shepherd, or rather, pastor, the church of God. And so Paul is instructing these appointed men to make sure that they are pastoring and overseeing the church locally where they've been appointed. And it's not just an honorary title they're being given. It is a work they are doing, right? It's something they were appointed to do. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 5 as well. Uh, Peter says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. So we see elder shepherd, overseer, again, in 1 Peter chapter 5, right? So all of these different terms are ultimately describing the same office of leadership in the church. An older man who meets these qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, who is married with believing children, who is just, devout, generous, sound in understanding and in teaching, etc., so another thing um, that I think is um, important, just kind of summarizing the point here, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, so when I'm studying with people and interacting with people, I hear Timothy and Titus called pastors a lot. And I'll hear these called pastoral letters to Timothy and Titus because they were pastoring the churches where they were. And I will try to point out that in 2 Timothy 4 verse 5, Timothy is not told to pastor. He is not ever called an elder of a church or a bishop or an overseer. 2 Timothy 4 verse 5, he says, But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So Timothy and Titus were not themselves elders, pastors. They were evangelists. They were teachers who would communicate and instruct sound doctrine and they would form relationships with brethren to teach truth, to encourage people to live in a godly way. So the principle to be, to be aware of. It's important to value each other, right? Um, teachers are important. Um, people who are qualified elders are important. 
But it's also important at the same time in learning to value each other that we're not exalting people as anything but mutual servants and stewards. And so Bryant is not more important than anybody else, any teacher, even a elder of a church, an appointed pastor even, of a local church. We are all mutual servants and stewards of whatever we're able to do according to the grace of God. And Paul would advocate this in 1 Corinthians when he would say, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And so Paul with the Corinthians was trying to exhort them in this same way, you need to see everybody as a mutual servant, not exalting one person over another. And there is a dangerous subtlety that is overlooked and tolerated in the world when men are called pastor by title in an honorary way. And that's, that just can't be how we refer to each other. Please be aware that that is dangerous and Jesus forbid doing such things, even in principle. Tithing. Um, in my experience, it seems like most every church um, in, in our culture uh, that is not sound Generally, they practice tithing and teach it. And this is one of those things that um, has surprised me, but it is, it's, seems very normal. So it's normal in our culture for churches to teach and encourage tithing as something God commands. And what tithing usually means is giving 10% of your income to the church. Um, so you'll, you'll see churches oftentimes refer to tithes and offerings and um, you know, I visited churches even recently where they'll dedicate a part of their assembly to encouraging people, you know, now is the time for your tithes and offerings and they'll read Malachi. And so we'll, we'll think about this. Should we practice tithing, giving 10% of our income to the church? Well, first, I think it's important we understand what tithing is in the Bible, right? So with any subject, just, I don't know, just caring enough to think, well, what does the Bible say about this? You know, and being willing to challenge something. Is this really what we are supposed to be doing? Look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 5. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 5. The law of Moses, in the law of Moses, so the Old Testament law that began at Mount Sinai, the Levites and priests were commanded to collect a tenth, a tithe, from their brethren. And we see this in Numbers 18, commanded, um, originally. So this is at the beginning of when Israel was established as a nation. God is giving them their fundamental instructions. Numbers 18 is where Levites and priests are commanded to collect a tenth from their brethren. Um, we'll come back to the second part of that, but I did want to put these on the board. Um, so Hebrews 7, verse 5 it says, And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth, that would be a tithe, from the people, that is from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. And we see in Numbers 18 where it says, To the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service, which they perform the service of the tent of meeting. And then in verse 24, For the tithe of the sons of Israel, which they offer as an offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I have said concerning them, they shall have no inheritance among the sons of Israel. So because the Levites and the priests would be devoting themselves to the work of sacrifices and teaching 
the temple and the tabernacle and the clean and unclean rituals and ordinances in the law. God didn't give them an inheritance, and so they depended on what their brethren in Israel would provide in this instruction. And it wasn't as much money as it was food, animals, land, and other resources. So the tithe wasn't that they were just giving money to the priests. The priests had no inheritance, and so the food that they would get from their brethren, that was, in a sense, their inheritance now. The land they would get, the resources they would get. Jesus would say that the Pharisees tithed mint, dill, rue, and cumin, spices. And that's the idea, is the tithe wasn't so much money. It was food, animals, and other resources for living because they didn't have occupations like their brethren to provide an income and other such resources. They depended on others. So fundamentally, even the idea that tithing is just writing a check of 10% of your income isn't really consistent with what we see tithing is in the Old Testament. So there's multiple issues with this. One, tithing is in the law of Moses, making it a part of the Old Covenant. And so we would need this to be reintroduced and instructed by the apostles to know that this is something that we should continue to do. So that's one. It's an Old Testament command. Secondly, this has a context of clear application. The context for tithing was related to the temple system. It was related to the work that certain people were doing within that system. And so to take that context and instruction and then apply it in a New Testament local church setting is not a consistent application fundamentally of the principle. What we do find is in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we see Paul establishing what is a consistent pattern of application and example, a very different pattern of giving with a local church. So 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 and 2. So this is what we see really as an established pattern for local churches, both how they should raise their money locally and what that money should then be used for. 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save, as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. So this is a collection of money that is raised by local Christians, not by community fundraisers, not by selling products to the community, not by selling products to visitors. This is in verse 2, a decision the individual is making on the first day of the week, however he may prosper, however he decides. Absolute freedom. No tithing, no set amount, no expectation besides give according to how you decide and as you may prosper, right? That's the pattern. And then how this church, how this money is to be used in verse 1, this is a collection for the saints. So not to be used for supporting worldly institutions or social events or anything like that. This is something that we see money is used to support needs of Christians. Uh, and we see that being specifically um, applied in different examples in the New Testament. So just fundamentally though, tithing is not reintroduced 
And the apostles never taught a church to practice tithing. It's just, it's not something we see taught to a church or practiced. And in fact, the principle of teaching tithing contradicts the principle here that people need to give at, at what they decide and need to be given the freedom to give however they decide and however they may prosper. So it, it's something that runs in contradiction with the pattern in the New Testament and principles of the New Covenant in contrast to the Old. So here's what we need to be aware of, though. Greed is blinding. Greed blinds our eyes to the quietness, the humility, and the freedom of things that God even generally says about money. And there's things with tithing that seem to give liberty for greed, um, that seem to give liberty for setting a very clear budget. We've got, let's say, a church of 50 people. Okay, 50 people all tithing 10%. Here's the check they're writing. Now we can budget for this. And that's the, the system that that ends up turning into is, is very different than the quiet freedom that uh, the local church exercises in its raising of money from the church internally and the using of that money for only needs of saints. And so we have to be very, very careful about how greed blinds us. It's not that we don't strive to be generous, but that generosity is not boastful, it is humble, and it is directed very carefully by what God says. Um, Another one that we've, this is the last one that we'll look at. This is something we've talked in Bible classes about quite a bit recently, but I thought it would be helpful to focus on something very specific in the sermon. So gender roles, uh, do they matter? And more specifically, um, here's what I'm referring to. It's very normal in our culture for women in assemblies to lead the worship, songs, prayers, teaching. Um, and that's, that's something that, again, is, is very normal in uh, churches in our culture. And this, this can be a very emotional thing to Um, to draw out, but in scripture it's a very important, very clear thing. So let's start with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14. So what we're trying to deal with very specifically is gender roles especially related to assembling as a local church. And thinking about what God says about gender roles in this kind of setting. So generally, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 11, it says, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. It was not Adam who is deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, we're going to look at this passage and one more in 1 Corinthians. But if you look back at verse 2, at the end of verse 2, everybody is generally instructed that we should be striving to lead a quiet and tranquil life in all godliness and dignity. In the cultures of the world, being instructed in a special way to be submissive and quiet means being demeaning, devalued, being placed in a place of less importance. We need to read God's word according to the culture of, of his kingdom and how Christ defines things. We'll talk about this more and reemphasize this, but to instruct submission and quietness and to fit into a role that God clearly designates is actually exalting in humility 
And it is something that we should see as beautiful and empowering rather than degrading. So fundamentally, though, um, we see because of uh, uh, the instruction in verse 11 and 12 that it's just not God's way for a woman to be leading in a context where men are being called to take that role. And I think in verse 13 and 14, when he mentions Adam and Eve, for one, this scripture is generally what I found in interactions dismissed because it said that Timothy was being told to deal with a very specific issue with a very specific church and a very specific culture, and therefore this is not for us anymore. But in verse 13 and 14, what Timothy is told is this is not because of any temporary cultural situation. This goes back to creation, that Adam was created first, I think, to be the spiritual leader. And in verse 14, I think what Paul is saying by inspiration is that when these roles were not respected, it resulted in severe consequences. Adam did not act as the leader. Eve acted as the leader. And so what happened is Adam, who went along with what Eve was doing, they both fell into transgression. So Paul, I think, isn't trying to devalue or degrade, but saying God inherently designed men to lead, and it is safe when we respect the call of that leadership. 1 Corinthians 14 is in the context more specifically of a church assembling together. So 1 Corinthians 14, uh, starting in verse 34, Uh, Look back at verse 26 really quickly, um, just to point out the context being in assembling, the local church coming together in this kind of context. In verse 26, he says, what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. And then if you look at verse 34, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but but are to subject themselves, just as the law says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So again, I've heard this in discussions dismissed as, well, this is dealing with some context that was more cultural and exclusive to the Corinthians and therefore it doesn't apply to us anymore. People say those things and it sounds very clever. Um, They can even use language that sounds very biblical Um, and yet that's just not what it says. Uh, I think when we just accept just honestly what God is clearly saying then it helps us stand firm and see this is just something that a person can understand very easily. Um, I don't think it could be said any clearer than what it says. And I think when you look at the text, in verse 36 through 38, I think Paul is recognizing is there may be in the Corinthians some pushback to this instruction. And so if you look at verse 37, he says he's writing the Lord's commandments. And if anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. So this is important. Whether or not a person doesn't like it, or it just it seems strange, or is different than our culture, It just, it doesn't change that this is God's commandment. So in assemblies, what we see 
outlined in the New Testament is women are instructed to let men take the lead with teaching, singing, leading, and that women are to subject themselves to God's appointments of that role. So secondly, and this is is so important, um, God is not devaluing a woman's gender or their role. When, When we see that and there's a tension when we read that, I worry that it may be the influence of our culture rather than looking at things from the influence of God's culture, right? And so in the kingdom, again, when God calls someone into a specific role or when humility and quietness are being instructed, to see that as a degrading thing is not looking at things from the lens of God's character. It's letting our culture dictate what is appropriate and what isn't. And so, again, in the culture of Jesus' kingdom, quietness and submission are beautiful qualities to be exalted, to be appreciated, and to be given the role of subjecting and learning and uh, talking about things in a home setting in verse 35 leads to other open doors of applying that role that are very essential. And if the only way we're seeing the importance of a person's role is when they're publicly seen or being able to have some kind of clear public forward role, then we're really closing so many doors of role and leadership that God wants us to see as open, right? And so we need to not overemphasize what is seemingly more visible and then end up consequently de-emphasizing what is not as easily seen. For example, even I were at a study recently where this was being talked about. We were talking about 1 Timothy 2 and gender roles obviously got brought up. And this was a study with people, you know, they're, they're still trying to figure things out and their backgrounds are in a place where it's not normal for, you know, these things to be taught as they're clearly being said. And someone made the comment, if I can't lead up front at an assembly, well, what can I do then? And that is generally, I think, the mentality. If I can't teach at a church assembly, well, there's nothing for me to do then, right? And what a shame when that's what's encouraged in our culture. So this is not an issue of whether or not God speaks clearly. Um, Verse 34 is just said, again, I think as clearly as it could be said, and the same with 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I think these things help us recognize that differences in the world and different teachings, it really is not an issue of whether or not God has been clear. There are things that can be difficult to work out and understand, well, what do we do with this? How do we understand this? But actually, what really becomes a great divide are things that God says quite clearly that really just divide, am I really willing to subject myself to the authority and dominion of God when it is distinctly and completely inconvenient and different than what others are practicing and doing? I want to finish the lesson with Revelation chapter 5. And I think in Revelation chapter 5, you see something said in a heavenly setting that I think is so important to apply here on earth. Revelation chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. Again, this is, it's not an issue of whether or not God has been clear. It's, It's an issue of just how far am I willing to let God rule in my life? And how far, when I read his word, How far am I willing to submit to his rule when I read his word and read inconvenient or challenging things? Revelation 5, 13 and 14. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, 
be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. How many words are there to describe authority? I think in verse 13 you see many of them. Honor, glory, and dominion. We see God sitting on a throne, and we see the Lamb, who we also know to be Jesus, who rules himself as King of kings and Lord of lords. And so it's so important, again, that when we see what God's word says, we read his instructions, that no matter what he says, we give him the liberty that if God speaks clearly, we simply accept what he says at face value. Even when it's not popular in our culture, even when our culture goes so far from truth that even the truth can seem wrong, we, with humility, can read and understand that when God says things in a straightforward way, He's speaking to be understood. It is the will of the individual that causes the divide. And so just God help us to be the kind of people who love God's authority, who praise his authority, who love his dominion, and reveal the beauty of that dominion as we interact with our neighbors around us as well. I hope that this lesson has been encouraging. I know this can be um, a little dry as more of a doctrinally proof lesson, But these things, I think, are very encouraging and helpful as we we review them and and learn them together. If there's anything that has been said that you may think differently on or would disagree with or want to talk more about, please ask questions, please have conversations. And if you disagree, let's let's study, let's dig into Scripture, and let's understand things better together. Um, That is a joy of seeking God's kingdom. Well, if there's anything else that needs to be brought forward before the church, we do set aside this time after the lesson as a time to bring forward spiritual needs. And so if there's anything that needs to be brought forward, whether a confession of sin or just seeking encouragement in anything, you can bring it forward while we stand and sing our invitation song.